Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. It's our new series on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And again, this is kind of the bad news section of the letter that we're in right now in chapter one. Might seem dark, might seem foreboding. Don't let it worry you. Don't let it trouble you. As Jesus said, hey, take heart. I've overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. So and what Paul's going to say is that Christ is the answer to all of this stuff, all of the evil, all of the sin in the world. But he has to explain how we just got done talking about the thesis statement of the letter in verses 16 and 17 of chapter one, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. So it's really for the whole world, uh, those who are the people of God of the old covenant time. And God still has a plan for them now, of course, as well. And the Gentiles who are now welcomed into the church. But both Jew and Gentile have a big, big sin problem. And Paul's going to lay that out. He's going to start with the Gentiles. He's going to start with the barbarians, as it were, barbarians at the gate. And he's going to say, listen, you guys have issues. But he's also going to say uh, to his Jewish friends and compatriots, because he is, of course, ethnically Jewish as well, you guys have issues too, because you have the law of God, you have the word of God, but you haven't always lived up to it. Let's face it. You need to go to confession too, as it were. So let's let's pick up the action here in Romans chapter one. We started talking about this little section last time. Let's finish it off. And this is really where, where St. Paul talks about idolatry. And he talks about idolatry first, because that is going to lead into his discussion on immorality in the world it follows automatically, like a mathematical equation. If there is idolatry, there will be immorality. You can bank on it. So let's pick it up once again at chapter 1, verse 18 and following. In Romans, St. Paul writes, The wrath of God is indeed being revealed from heaven against every impiety and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And again, we talked about this last time, that this doesn't mean God is blowing a stack. The emotion of anger, again, he doesn't experience that. Of course, the incarnate Christ did, uh, and he had purified human nature, of course, without sin. But this idea of the punishment of God, it has to happen. Sin must be punished. And Jesus talked about this as well in John chapter 3, verse 36. And he just kind of lays it out very simply. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him or remains upon him. So this idea, and I like the way that Jesus puts it here in John 3, 36, because he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Belief does not mean just intellectual assent. It means actual obedience. It means becoming obedient to. And and in in the very next verse in John, uh, oh, it's in the same verse, John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son, again, Jesus says, belief equals obedience. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. So that's a really good thing to point out here, with reference to to Romans. All right. So Paul talks about those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They're kind of pushing it down. They're uh, not obeying their conscience. They're they're really deceiving themselves in so many ways. We mentioned this in the last episode. Let's pick it up now at verse 19, Romans 1. 
for what can be known about God is evident to them because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God or the likeness of an image of mortal man or of birds or four-legged animals or of snakes. Okay, so let's, let's stop it there. And just to unpack this a little bit, essentially what's being discussed here is the problem of idolatry, as we said. Now, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in paragraph 2113, it says this, Idolatry not only refers to false pagan worship, and we hear, we hear of course, about all the idols of the Gentiles, uh, the various fake gods that, that are worshipped. I think about the gods of the, quote, small g gods, of course, quote-unquote, of the Egyptians. Um, the bull god, more about that later, uh, Apis, and, and all of the other, and, and many of the, the plagues that God sent on the Israelites uh, during the Exodus period were, in fact, direct attacks on the so-called gods of Egypt. Please refer to our series on Exodus in the Faith Explained archives for much, much more on that. But the Catechism says that not only idolatry, not only does it refer to false pagan worship, it remains a constant temptation to faith. Idolatry consists in divinizing what is not God. Man commits idolatry whenever he honors and reveres a creature in place of God, whether this be gods or demons, for example, Satanism, power, pleasure, one's race, ancestors, the state, money, etc. Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. Many martyrs died for not adoring the beast. Well, that's the beast. That's that's a. It's not one of the X Men characters. Of course, there is a guy called the Beast, but it, that's a reference to the number of the beast, the mark of the beast in the Book of Revelation. Again, uh, we spent quite a bit of time on that one too in our Revelation series on the Faith Explained. It's always a subject of great curiosity. But as I said uh, in that teaching session, the beast six six six, the number of the beast, it actually adds up to the value if every letter is a number in gematria. It's actually spelling out the name, using numbers, of Nero Caesar. It adds up to 666. Nero Caesar, of course, unleashed a, a wicked persecution on the church, resulting in the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul, who wrote Romans in Rome, uh, in, in a great um, conflagration. He had Christians, believers, uh, lit up as human torches for his garden parties. And, of course, the city eventually burned. He blamed it all on the church. Uh, he probably set the fire himself as he fiddled on the roof. Nero, he is the beast that is personified there, and there are, he's an he's an antichrist. There are many antichrists in the world, but th this paragraph of the Catechism, paragraph twenty one thirteen, really does shed a lot of light here on the sorts of stuff that Saint Paul is talking about here. And and the fact of the matter is that if you do not worship the one true and living God, you will commit idolatry. You will worship someone or something because it's ingrained in your nature. Human beings are worshiping creatures, and so it will. if it's not going to be God, it will be money, or it will be power, or pleasure, or your car, or your smartphone, or whatever is on the throne of your heart, whatever you're really orienting your life around and paying the most attention to, 
uh, occupies all your waking thoughts and decisions, that's your idol, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be necessarily a statue of a pagan god. Anything can be an idol. So th this is something that can inflict, obviously, Catholic Christians as well, because it's very easy for us to read this stuff and kind of go, oh, those knuckleheads in the first century, but we know much better. Oh, do we really? I think the idols have just simply changed. But at any rate, th that, that does kind of shed some light on this. And we spent some time also in the last episode talking about how God reveals himself in creation through natural revelation. We looked at Psalm 19. Also, the Book of Wisdom is another, there are a lot of places you can go here. Psalm 106, verse 20, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. But Wisdom chapter 13 is really instructive here on this front. Let me just read a little bit of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, Wisdom 13, verses 1 through 10 is a place where you can go. And this is from the book known as the Wisdom of Solomon. And it's really all about the foolishness of idolatry. It says, for all men, of course, this applies to all human beings, men and women, for all men who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know him who exists, nor did they recognize the craftsman while paying heed to his works. So this is um, something that we have to, even on a human level, if you see a, a beautiful automobile, a classic Porsche or a Somebody designed this thing. Somebody designed this thing. And um, whether it's Henry Ford with a, with a Model T or whether it's a, a beautiful building, whether it's the Statue of Liberty, whether it's the Mona Lisa, some artist created this. Why don't we do the same thing with creation itself? Why don't we understand that there is an, uh, a supernatural craftsman, if you will? So the writer of uh, Wisdom of Solomon says, nor did they recognize the craftsman while paying heed to his works, but they supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. If through delight in the beauty of these things men assumed them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord. Yeah, it goes on, and you should definitely read it. We don't have time to get into it right now. But the heavenly bodies have often been worshipped as deities. The sun, the moon, the stars, the, the, the planets, anything can become an idol. There's, and as one writer said, the human mind is essentially a factory of idols. It just keeps producing them. And there's no way really to, to shut it off without God's help. And so we really need to, to, to get this right. So the pagan world is very much guilty of all this stuff. And, 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 and as Paul's, as we're going to see, well, I'll save this for next time, but, but let, let's just look really, really quickly. This happened to Paul himself, by the way. This is, this is something that Paul actually has firsthand experience with because people tried to worship Paul. This is amazing. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 14, this is a really, really great passage. This is when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra and Derbe. And it says that, uh, this is Acts 14, Now at Lystra there's a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was a cripple from birth who had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and walked. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, it's kind of the local dialect, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul, because he was the chief speaker, they called Hermes. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the people. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments. And that's what, of course, um, in Jewish mindset, you tear your garments whenever there's a blasphemy being committed, like the high priest thought that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy when he says he's the Messiah, he's the Son of Man. <sighs> Tears his robes. It's not because he didn't like what his, you know, his servants picked out for him to wear in the morning. It's because of blasphemy. And this is exactly what Paul and Barnabas do. They tear their garments, they rend their garments, and it says they rushed out among the multitude, crying, Men, why are you doing this? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. With these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So, these pagans were, were ready to worship Paul and Barnabas, and if they were weaker men, they might have given into it. Say, yeah, this is, why don't we just stay here and become gods of the city? You know, we'll have sumptuous meals all the time. They're going to they're gonna barbecue some oxen for us. It's going to be great. Maybe they have beer. I don't know. But they didn't do it, of course. They, they said, you've got to turn from this. We, we are, we're human just like you. Absolutely. But then, of course, um, uh, his fellow Jews wind up uh, stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city. Uh, they didn't share the sentiments of these pagans about Paul. Um, they see him as a dangerous enemy. But, but nonetheless, that, that's a great example of Paul has, has firsthand experience with all of this, of course, living in the Roman world and uh, the idolatry that's there all over the place. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. So what do we have here in the next little verse? One of the things that Paul says is that the pagan world, even though they don't have supernatural revelation, they still have natural revelation. They have the natural law. And he says in verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 1, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is what he said to the Lyconians. Hey, God has not, he's done good to you. He's given you rains, he's given you seasons, he's given you harvests, all this good stuff. You should understand this. God has shown it to them. And Paul says back in Romans again, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, this is really important. Paul is basically saying nobody has any excuse. There, there is talk, of course, and, and there are people who really are falling into this category of what the church calls invincible ignorance. They don't know. They literally don't know. They're, they're ignorant, and they, they had, I had no idea. They can honestly say to God, I had no idea about any of this stuff. I think really Paul is, is kind of, kind of maybe seconding me on this. My, my personal opinion is that there's not too many folks out there who could actually say that. Paul is saying 
that just perceiving from creation, you should be able to know that there is an eternal God. And he says, you have no excuse. You're not going to be able to say on the judgment day, I didn't know. I don't know. It's like a, uh, asking a child a question. I don't know. I didn't know. Nobody told me. So this is kind of culpable ignorance. Maybe. Maybe. But uh, they don't know, but they, they ought to have known. They ought to have known. And so in verse 21, here's the result of this. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their understanding, in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. So one of the, one of the interesting things, that one of the worst things we can do when it comes to God is not give him thanks. And of course, the, the very Eucharist itself, the word Eucharist means, in Greek, Eucharistia means thanksgiving. We give God thanks for all he has done for us. One of the ways we do this is by participating in worship of him. And we have to be grateful. Everything that we have, our life, the world, the food we eat, the clothes on our back, everything, the skills that we have, the ability to, to earn uh, resources to provide for our family, everything comes from God. And if you don't give thanks to the true and living God, you will, as Scott Hahn says in his commentary in Romans, you will spiral downward into the vice of idolatry. G.K. Chesterton, when he converted to Catholicism, one of the things he said was that his search for God, in many ways for him, began because he, he didn't have anyone to give thanks to for all of his many blessings. Not too many people think like that. Not too many people have this attitude of gratitude. They're thinking, you know, why isn't my life better? Why can't I have this? Why can't I have that? This desire for more, more, more. But, but Chesterton was just thankful for what he had. And of course, everything ultimately came from God. And as we'll see in the next episode of The Faith Explained, when you do spiral downward into the vice of idolatry, rejecting, of course, the true and living God, the result is immorality. Your mind becomes darkened and senseless, as St. As Paul says here in verse 21. And this leads to all kinds of heinous sins. A lot of them have to do with the human body and human sexuality, but we'll get to that. And it's even worse than that. Ultimately, it is a spiritual sickness that drives all of the ill behavior that we're going to see as we go on here. And once again, it's easy for us to, to, to think, man, this is a, a terrible mess. What a mess. And it really is a mess. But ultimately, the good news of the gospel is we can say, yeah, what a mess, but what a God. What a God we serve. What a God we have who has become incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has taken the just punishment for all of this stuff on himself and taken our place so that we could be set free and live for God. And so we're going to talk more about this in the next episode of The Faith Explained. It's a fun journey through the letter to the Romans. So more on this later, but right now we're going to open up the Q&A session of The Faith Explained. Stay tuned. All right, for our Q&A session, I'm going to finish answering a question that I started before, but I want to remind you right now that you can send me your question, and I'll try to answer it on air to the best of my ability. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also try to find me on the X slash Twitter app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. 
Now, in the past, I started talking about the Psalms. I did a Q&A session on the Psalms, and I never really quite finished it. So I, I think now is a good time to do it. And if you missed uh, uh, part one, we're going to put a link to it in the show notes to that particular episode. Uh, but don't worry, this will all make sense even if you missed the first part. Dr. Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, has written so much on the Psalms over his career. One of the things that he that he mentions, he, he did this article on the top 10 things you need to know about the Psalms. And, and point number five, we did the first four before. Point number five, he says, the superscripts are actually part of the Psalms. And you might be saying, what is the superscript? Well, when you read your Bible and you open it up to the book of Psalms, let me just pull one out for, for example. Here's the superscript. Before the Psalm actually starts, there'll be a little couple of annotations. Let's look at Psalm 22. It says, for the director of music, to the tune of the Doe of the Morning. I guess the Doe of the Morning was a popular tune at the time. A Psalm of David. So a lot of the Psalms will say a Psalm of David at the beginning. And then sometimes there, there's some other notes in there as well. Now, one of the, where it's, whenever it says for the director of music, it's usually at the start of one Psalm, but that actually refers to the previous Psalm. It's kind of the end of the last one. Oh, send this to the director of music, essentially, is, is the point. Because these are, are songs to be sung in the liturgical worship of Israel. But but that, that stuff is not an add-on. Now, it's not the case for other biblical books. For example, in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to John, the Gospel according to Matthew, they were not part of the original text. But they but we do know that th that's what the document was called. That's, those are for other reasons. But when it comes to the Psalms, the superscript is actually part of it. It's kind of an interesting factoid there. And sometimes these superscripts can actually tell us more about what the psalm is supposed to be all about. For example, psalm number three is really about David running away from Absalom, his son, who's trying to take over, uh, bust up his kingdom, and maybe even kill his dad. So if you don't have some of these superscripts, you don't really know what some of the psalms are really all about, so you don't have the context. So what will happen for, for most of these psalms is that the psalmist will, will state his name, okay, a psalm of David, and it's either a psalm or a miktam, that sort of thing. And this, again, this whole thing to the choir master or to the director of music, that appears at the beginning, but it, it is in fact the end of the last psalm before that. Another point that Bruce, uh, Dr. Bruce Walkie makes, uh, this is really point number six in his top ten things that we need to know about the psalms, Again, the Psalter is a liturgical book. Moses was given the entire worship of the Old Covenant, how it was to be done when he was up on Mount Sinai. Not only did he receive the Ten Commandments of the Law, and you can read more about this in the book of Exodus. We did the Exodus series on the Faith Explained to help explain that book, so find that in the archives. But there's a whole system of how to worship God where to worship, the tabernacle, the priesthood, how to make the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, all of that stuff. David eventually brings the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And when he did that, you can read about this in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, he had kind of a little twist of his own, a musical element, which really wasn't part of it before. But David, of course, he's dancing before the Ark, he's singing, he loves that stuff, and, and he wants to incorporate that into the worship of the ancient Israel. It's very festive. And so we see here um, songs all over the place. 
And that's what they really are in, in, in the book of Psalms. They are worship songs. They are the songs of ascents. Uh, some of the Psalms that you'll read, it says a song of ascent. What does that mean, ascent? It means going up. And it really means going up to Jerusalem for, for a sacred feast, one of the great feasts of uh, the Old Covenant. And the reason why you're going up to Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem is located in the south, it's in Judea, it's in the south. But yeah, you might be traveling from the north to get there. For example, Jesus, uh, St. Joseph, Mother Mary, they would have been traveling in a caravan of people down to the festivals. And this is where Jesus gets, quote unquote, lost in the temple, right? Uh, the finding of the child Jesus is one of the mysteries of the rosary. But all of this happens. They're, they're going south from the Galilee to Jerusalem. But even though they're going south on the map, they're actually going up because of the Temple Mount. It's, it's this idea of climbing the Temple Mount, ascending to the house of God in Jerusalem. So that's, that's really what that means if you ever read this in the book of Psalms. The house of the Lord, his holy hill. Again, this is, this is Mount Zion. This is the, the, the mountain, as it were. So this is the temple. All of these psalms are really to do with the temple. And this is a public book. So these aren't sort of private love poems. These are songs that all the people of God would sing together. It's kind of a hymn book, if you will. And we have hymn books in our Catholic parishes. Some of them are great. Some of them maybe oh, from you know, a certain time period. They might not be so great musically. But it, this is the idea. It's the hymn book of the people of God, Israel. Now, all, the interesting thing, too, is that these psalms, just like everything else in the Old Covenant, ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. More on that later. But the book of Psalms, even though it's one book, it's divided up, really, into five books. So the psalms are, really have five sections. And book one is Psalms 1 through 41. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72. So books one and two in the Psalms are, are really, most of the Psalms are by David, although Psalm 72 is really about Solomon. It's, it has a lot to do with Jesus, more on this in a little bit. But David uh, is going through all kinds of things in, in the first book of the Psalms, Psalm 1 all the way up to Psalm 72. He's being attacked by his enemies. He's angry. Sometimes he's really happy. He's praising God. These are really, this is really the theme. Um, in books one and two. And it really, if you look at Psalm number one, it actually sets the tone for the entire book. So just really quickly, let's look at Psalm one together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the reader of the Psalms, you're supposed to say to yourself, I'm that guy. I'm like a good tree here, and I, I need to bear good fruit with my life. I'm not like the wicked. So th these are the types of people that should be reading the Psalms, the ideal kind of person that meditating on the Word of God and reading it and singing it helps you to become. So more on this in the next episode of Faith Explained, our next Q&A session. We'll continue on our little mini sessions on, on the Psalms, what they're all about, and we'll finish that off. But if you have a question about something else, we'll get to it. 
as best we can. Email me, faith at relevantradio.com. Find me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark. Thanks for joining me on the Faith Explain. I'll be with you later today, 5 p.m. Central on the Kale Clark Show. We'll see you then. God bless you. Let's pray for one another. Peace.